Is God real? Are the stories in the Bible true? I need answers. Welcome to A Closer Look with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you chose to spend the next hour with us as we delve into the study of God's Word. We can't do what we don't know. Here at Shiloh, we want to spend time studying the Word so that we can rightly apply the Word to our daily living and make a difference in our community and in our world for Jesus Christ. Won't you join us now for a closer look into God's Word? As we continue our look, this is part three of our look at, uh, at Samson in, in the Judges. Uh, we've looked at several of the judges and uh, we, we've spent more time with Samson than any of the others. One of the things that we are left to ponder as we continue this look at Samson, one of the people that I call an anti-hero of the scripture. Uh, uh, we're left to ponder what truth is there that we are to gather from Samson's story that can be helpful to our understanding of who God is and how he acts. If, if nothing else, by now you know that Samson, while terribly gifted by God, frighteningly gifted by God, uh, has little appreciation for the gift that God has given him and uses that gift in somewhat reckless ways. And, and, and so we're left to ask ourselves, to ask one another, all right, we, we're spending all this time in Samson, with Samson. What is it that we're supposed to be learning from Samson? Well, you asked a very good question, so I'm glad you asked. Let's, let's try to answer it as we move into Judges chapter 15. We invite you to consider the wills of God, W-I-L-L-S, the wills of God. It's helpful to understand Samson if we have an understanding of the wills of God. God has three wills. He has an original will, he has a permissive will, and he has an ultimate will. I want to define each one of those for you. What is God's original will? Scripture makes it clear that God's original intent for his relationship with humanity was that we in our living would glorify our creator. That is why we were made. We were made to have fellowship with God in a manner that is unique among all other forms of life. You go back and read the creation story. And, and as you read the creation story, it becomes clear that with all that God made, with, 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 with all that God brought into existence, man is separate and distinct. With everything else that, that, that has to do with the creation, it says that God spoke it into existence. He spoke and it was. And, 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 and then it says the evening and the morning, and it was good. But when it comes to us, when it comes to humanity, it does not say that God spoke us into existence. It says that God stepped into the world. 
and gathered the dust of the, King James says dust. Other versions say clay. I kind of like the idea of thinking that we dust. Because yeah. dust is, is an insult to what, if, if you call clay dust, clay would be insulted. But, but, but that's, what, that, that, that's what the King James Version says, that we were, we were formed from the dust of the earth. But God didn't speak us into existence. God shaped man. It, it says that God took the dust, the clay, and formed it and shaped it into the image that he wanted it to have. And then it says that he breathed into man. And man became a living so now, now this is not a, a scientific explanation. What is intended by this is to make it clear that of all that God created, we're different. He spoke light and dark into existence. He, he spoke firmaments into existence so that there was water above the firmament and water below the firmament. He spoke vegetation into existence. He spoke fishes into existence. He spoke animals into existence. But when it comes to humanity, he formed a man with his own hand, shaped him in the image that he wanted him to be and then into him. And only of man does it say he became a living soul. Y'all get mad when I say Fido ain't in heaven. Doesn't say Fido has a living soul. I, I know y'all love Spot or whatever you call your, your animal. Uh, but, 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 but those things don't have living souls. Scripture says man is different. We were made, and, 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 and our original intent, God's original intent for us was that with the unique way in which we were made, we were to have a unique fellowship with God that no other aspect of creation has. Our relationship was intended to be pure. It was intended to be voluntary. And it was intended to be mutually beneficial. Pure. Man was made perfect. Man was made without sin. We were made in a particular way. Voluntary. Man was given free will. Man has something. When, when the scripture says that we were shaped in the image of God, that has nothing to do with what we look like. That has to do with the fact that we have certain characteristics that God has. And one of those characteristics is sovereignty. And so this fellowship that, that we were to enjoy with God, God did not make it so that we must have fellowship with him. He made it so that we choose to have fellowship with him. And it was mutually Beneficial. Now, you know your beneficial part, right? Everything you have comes from the Lord. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. Everything that we have comes from him. So what's the benefit to God? If you know what your benefit is, how is it mutually beneficial? It's mutually beneficial because in response to what God has given to us, he expects us to give him glory and to give him praise. And somehow or other, God benefits from our glory and from our praise. That was the original will 
of God. Well, when you move from original, you have to move to the permissive will of God. The permissive will of God comes about because God did not want our worship to be forced. He wants our worship to be free and unfettered. He wants our worship to be because we want to. And so God gave us sovereignty. But with that sovereignty, humanity chose to rebel against God. With that sovereignty, humanity chose to go its own way. Part of the permissive will is that God allows us to use the gifts that he has bestowed upon us in ways that are not sanctioned by him. I want you to hear that again. If you're listening to me on television, I want you to hear that very carefully. Terrence, you write that on the screen when you get there. He allows us to use the gifts that he has given to us in ways that are not sanctioned by him. He allows it, but he doesn't sanction it. He allows it, but he doesn't approve of it. That's part of the permissive will of God. Scripture teaches that there are consequences for such misuse of these gifts. The repentant are restored. But the unrepentant or the non-repentant, I'm sure there's an English teacher out there saying, it ain't un, it's non, or it ain't non, it's un. So the non-repentant or the unrepentant, y'all tell me which one it is, they are forever perpetually estranged from God. But along the way, that, 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 that's the end. That, 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 that's when you leave here. That, that's by and by when the morning comes. Because when the morning comes, for some folk, it ain't going to be a, a pleasant morning. Amen. But, but before you get there, along the way, there is regularly consternation and incredulity when we survey the havoc that we may wreak in God's name by using the gifts that he has given us in ways that he does not sanction. If you believe that everything you have comes from the Lord, all that you have comes from the Lord, then you have to believe that when you misuse what God gave you, it doesn't change the fact that God gave it to you. This idea that bad stuff comes from the devil and good stuff comes from God, that might sound good, but there is no scriptural support at all for that. When you say bad stuff comes from the devil, you're actually giving the devil more credit 
than he's due. Bad stuff comes from you. Choosing to listen to the devil. There's a difference between saying bad stuff comes from the devil and saying what I'm saying, which is bad stuff comes from you listening to the devil. Isn't it interesting how we love our sovereignty when it suits us? And then we get mad about our sovereignty when it does not. That's the permissive will of God. Third, there is the ultimate will of God. Because God loves us so much, he has made provision for all of us to be restored to the place of fellowship with him that humanity originally enjoyed and even more. Through the gift of Jesus Christ, we are promised not just restoration, but we are promised an improved relationship. How's it improved? Before Jesus, we were merely God's chief creation. Not bad, right? It's not bad to be the chief creation. But after Jesus, those who come into a relationship with God, you're more than the chief creation. You're a child of the king. After Jesus, you're part of the family. Scripture says we are heirs of God. Joint heirs with Christ. So it is God's ultimate will in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our wrongdoing, in spite of our evil. It is God's ultimate will to restore to us the relationship that he originally intended for us and then take it to another level. That's good news. So, there is the original will of God. There is the permissive will of God. There is the ultimate will of God. Nobody has a problem with the original will of God, and nobody has a problem with the ultimate will of God. You want to know everybody has a problem? Everybody has a problem with the permissive will of God. Why is it that, 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 that we have a problem with that? Our problems rest with the permissive will of God when it is revealed with terrible outcomes that result in suffering. And that's where Samson comes in. I, all of this is, is to help us understand what it is that we can learn from Samson. Samson is a case study in the permissive will of God, gifted by God, immensely gifted by God, but has no appreciation for the gift that God has given him. And with that gift, 
he does some terrible things. Now, it's right to criticize Samson because of the choices that he makes, because they are his. But here's the problem with the permissive will of God. We are wary, we're scared to criticize God. Even though our faith tells us that God is the one that permits Samson to carry on in the way that he does. Good, I got your attention, you're quiet, good. Because I, I want you to think about what I just said. You ain't got no problem criticizing Samson. But really, when you start talking about the permissive will of God, you have to also look at God, right? It is the permissive will of God. When we look at not just Samson, when we look at others throughout history, other individuals, other groups, other nations that are guilty of worse atrocities than what we find Samson engaged in. We don't know what to do with God's permissive will. We don't know how to deal with it. At the very least, we're double-minded about it. We want God to permissively allow us the liberty to think and speak and behave as we choose. But we want God to curtail the thinking, the speaking, and the behavior of others that we find offensive. And Jesus doesn't make it better. Matthew chapter 5, I think it's verse 45, where Jesus says, and I'm reading from the message version, God gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone. The good and the bad. The nice and the nasty. And we ain't got no problem with God letting the, 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 the sun shine on us. Or the rain to fall gently, not too much, gently on us. But we do have problems when God lets the sun shine on folk that we don't consider worthy of his sunshine. It's the constant tension that we deal with in life. Ain't nobody in here got a problem with God's original will, and you sure ain't got no problem with his ultimate will. Your problem is with his permissive will. And your problem is, how do we resolve that? So then, what conclusions are we to draw from this reality? That this is a constant tension. What, what is it that, 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 that we can do with this? There are at least four conclusions that I want to put before you. Number one, we cannot know the mind of God. But 
we can trust in his goodness. All of that's number one. You can't know his mind. What you think you know is just a little bit. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. That's Isaiah. Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then shall I know even as I am also known. So, clearly we cannot know the mind of God. But we can trust in his goodness. I don't have to know in order to trust. My trust is based on who he is, not on what he has shown to me. You know, we, 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 we are trust but verify folk. President Reagan made that phrase famous, talking about the Russians. We trust, but, but we need to trust but verify. A lot of us want to be trust but verify folk with God. We want, we want to verify God. Do you know how far outside the line you have stepped when you're trying to verify God? We can't know his mind, but we can trust his goodness. Conclusion number two, we cannot defend the wrong acts of anyone, friend or foe or self. Don't leave the last part out. You cannot defend wrong behavior by anybody. I don't care if they're your friend. I don't care if they're your family. You cannot defend wrong behavior by anyone. And that includes you. Conclusion number three. You cannot claim the privileges of liberty and autonomy for yourself if you seek to deny it to others. You can't, you can't say, I'm free. I can do what I want to do. God made me this way. And then get mad because God made somebody else that way too. With that freedom and with that autonomy, folk going to do stuff that's going to drive you totally insane if you let it. It's a wonderful thing to have reached the age where I don't worry about crazy folk no more. Hadn't always been there. Crazy folk used to worry me, used to bedevil me, used to, used to, used to be a problem. But I have reached the point where I know crazy folk are crazy. They're going to be crazy. And they're going to run me crazy if I let them. I got planks in my own eye. 
I don't need to be messing with specs in my brother's or my sister's eye. So I, I can't claim autonomy and liberty for me and try to deny it for you just because I don't like what you do with freedom and autonomy. Doesn't mean that I have to approve it, doesn't mean I have to like it, but I, I accept the fact that you are free to be as crazy as a Bessie bug. Conclusion number four. We cannot lose faith that ultimately God will work it out in the end in a way that glorifies him and satisfies those who trust in him. That's the, those are the four, and I'm not saying it's an exhaustive list, but those are four conclusions that we can draw about the permissive will of God. Because th there is a tension that exists with that permissive will. Four things. We can't know the mind of God, but we can trust in his goodness. We can't defend wrong acts by anybody, and anybody includes you. We can't claim privileges for ourselves that we try to deny to other people. And we cannot lose faith that ultimately God's going to work it out in a way that glorifies him and satisfies those who trust in him. Be clear. I'm not saying everybody's going to be satisfied. I'm saying everybody who trusts in him will be satisfied. All things work together for the good to them who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. This is, this is what Samson is a case study of, because Samson is a case study of the permissive will of God. We've, we've already had another case study back a couple months ago when we were dealing with Jacob. Jacob is another case study of the permissive will of God. But here we see the permissive will of God as it is played out in Samson's life. So let's look at chapter 15. Later on, it was during the wheat harvest, Samson visited his bride, bringing a young goat. He said, let me see my wife, show me her bedroom. But her father wouldn't let him in. He said, I concluded that by now you hated her with a passion. So I gave her to your best man. But her little sister is even more beautiful. Why not take her instead? Samson said, that does it. This time, when I wreak havoc on the Philistines, I'm blameless. Samson then went out and caught 300 jackals. He lashed the jackals' tails together in pairs and tied a torch between each pair of tails. He then set fire to the torches and let them loose in the Philistine fields of ripe grain. Everything burned, both stacked and standing grain, vineyards and olive orchards. Everything. After a period of time, if, if you recall, when, when we ended chapter 13, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 14, 
uh, uh, Samson after he committed mass murder and killed 30 people and took their clothes back to satisfy a bet that he had lost. He left. He, he, he didn't go get his wife. He left and went home and stayed home. And, 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 and his prospective father-in-law came to the conclusion, well, I guess he ain't going to marry her. And I need to marry her off to somebody. So next man steps That's what the best man does, right? Best man steps up. So that was a joke. That was a joke. But, 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 but he gave her to the best man. So as we start chapter 15, Samson comes back. And he comes back looking for his wife, only to find out that she has been given in marriage to the best man. Still intent. Remember now, the marriage was more than just a love affair. For, for, for Samson, it says that when he saw her, he wanted her. But, but, but this, this for the families was more than just a love affair. This was a merging of families, a merging of wealth, a merging of cultures. And so, in order to appease Samson, the father offers his younger, and the text says, more beautiful daughter as a replacement. This is another reminder, as if y'all need enough of them. This is another reminder of the devaluation of women in this culture. They are dispensable. They are disposable. That they would be viewed as little more than chattel and bargaining pieces in the effort of families to enrich themselves through trade and mergers. Understand this. When people are devalued by a culture, hear me, because I ain't just talking about females now. When people are devalued by a culture, they are seen as chattel and bargaining pieces that may be exploited by the wealthy and powerful in order to maintain their control and enrich themselves. In the text, it's about women. In today's society, it's about poor and marginalized people. Yes, well, slavery is, is an example of it. Slavery is an excellent example of it, where the poor and the marginalized are exploited in order for the rich to maintain their wealth and their power. It's a devaluation of a people. And we have to constantly be aware that that devaluation is not something that's in the past. Devaluation takes place every day. 
right here in America, right here, you, you took my thunder, right here in Louisiana, I was going to get to Baton Rouge in a second, right here in Baton Rouge, devaluation of people, devaluation of an entire class of people takes place all the time. And it's exploitation. And it's sinful. In fact, what you find is as black folk have gotten more economically successful, they've taken on the same characteristics of their white counterparts. Samson has offered his, 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 his supposed wife's or his would-have-been wife's, his would-be wife's younger sister, and he's enraged. He feels as though he has been cheated and that his being cheated justifies any punishment that he decides to dish out on the Philistine people. So look at what he does. Samson catches 300 jackals. I ain't never caught a jackal. But I can imagine to catch you right, Carter. <laughs> I ain't never caught a jackal. But I can imagine catching 300 took some time. Then after he caught the 300, it says that he tied their tails together two by two. I imagine that took some time too. Then he put a torch between each one of the tied tails. That would be 150 torches if I did my math right. And then he set them loose on the fields so that the fields were burned. Remember how, how the text starts. It says later on it was during the wheat harvest. So this was at the height of their economic prosperity. He caught 300 jackals, tied the tails of 300 jackals to each other, found 150 torches, put them between the tails that he had tied, lit the torches, and set them loose in the fields. If you go to all that trouble, it's a sign that there's something wrong with your head. I'm trying to get y'all to see why, why I call Samson a fool. Didn't say he wasn't blessed. There are a whole lot of blessed fools. Amen. It is a sign of an unchecked ego at best and of mental instability at worst. When we feel justified at lashing out at others because we've been hurt, I'm trying to bring this home to you. You, you, you ain't gonna go catch 300 jackals, I hope. 
but you will do other stuff. It's a sign of an unchecked ego at best and that there's something wrong with you mentally or emotionally at worst. If, understand something. Because somebody will say, well, he just got mad. How long do you have to stay mad? That you had to catch 300 jackals, tie their tails together, find 150 torches, light them all, and say, mad don't, don't, don't fit into that. Crazy fits into that. I know that there, that, that, that there is within our law such a thing as, as rash behavior based upon somebody does something to you and, and, and just instinctively you act. This ain't instinct. This is crazy. This is mean. This is vengeful. This is I'm going to take my time and I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do. That's what it is. It's premeditated. The wheat crops, the olive crops, the entire economy of this community <coughs> was disrupted because Samson got mad because his father-in-law, prospective father-in-law, gave the daughter to somebody else. And in his anger, he felt justified in doing what he did. This kind of lack of control can have devastating consequences. Not just for the victims, but for the perpetrators as well. We have to be careful about our unchecked egos. You know, I know some of y'all think that can't nobody do nothing to who you think you're talking to. First thing come out your mouth. Don't nobody treat me like that. I understand that nobody wants to be mistreated. Believe me, I understand that. But if you live long enough, somebody's going to mistreat you. Somebody's going to disrespect you. Somebody's going to do something to you or to someone you love that you don't like or appreciate. That does not give you the right to go crazy. And if you think it does, then you've got a problem. And not only do you have a problem, but you're going to cause a problem for other folk. So what happens? Because I'm running out of that. The Philistines said, who did this? They were told, Samson, son-in-law of the Timnite, who took his bride and gave her to his best man. The Philistines went up and burned both her and her father to death. Samson then said, if this is the way you're going to act, I swear I'll get even with you. And I'm not quitting till the job's done. With that, he tore into them, ripping them limb from limb 
a huge slaughter. Then he went down and stayed in a cave at Etam Rock. So Samson's ego is bruised and he acts out in a rash and ugly and violent way. And in response to that, the Philistines act out in a rash and ugly and violent way. Recklessness often begets recklessness. And unnecessary suffering is the result. Sadder still is that none of the damage done changed anything. Think about that. Samson acts out because his supposed wife was given to somebody else in marriage. After he set all this stuff on fire, the woman was still somebody else's wife. Didn't change a thing. When the Philistines see what he has done, they kill the woman and her father in retaliation. Doesn't change the fact that their crops are still gone. And their economy is still messed up. My point is this. When we act like this, it doesn't change anything. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, hate begets hate. Violence begets violence. Toughness begets a greater toughness. He said, we must meet the forces of hate with the power of love. If you want to remedy situations, certain things, once they're done, they can't be undone. And acting in a wild, reckless, violent manner doesn't change the outcome of anything. The Philistines set out and made camp in Judah, preparing to attack Lehi, also known as Jawbone. When the men of Judah asked, why have you come up against us? They said, we're out to get Samson. We're going after Samson to do to him what he did to us. You see how this thing is escalating? Three companies of men from Judah went down to the cave at Edom Rock and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines already bully and lord it over us? So what's going on with you, making things even worse? He said, it was tit for tat. I only did to them what they did to me. They said, well, we've come down here to tie you up and turn you over to the Philistines. Samson said, just promise not to hurt me. We promise, they said, we will tie you up and surrender you to them, but believe us, we won't kill you. They proceeded to tie him with new ropes and led him up from the rock. Samson's troubles now radiate out to other Hebrew tribes. Remember, Samson was not of Judah. Samson was of the tribe of Dan. But after he did what he did, he ran to the Judah territory. And the Philistines came after him into the Judah territory. And now 
it's become the, the, the problem of Judah to deal with Samson. So, their intention was to confront Samson with overwhelming force. Three companies of soldiers. Three companies of men. Some texts list it as not three companies, but 3,000. That's an overwhelming force coming after one person. The verbal exchange is interesting, but it's also typical. They ask Samson, why did you bring this trouble to us? They did not ask Samson, what can we do to help you? They did not ask Samson, what can we do to defend you? They asked Samson, why did you bring this trouble to us? They're not interested in helping him. Their only concern is how your behavior is going to impact us. My brothers and sisters, don't you ever forget that the concern of the average individual is only how your behavior is going to impact them. Now, if you're sitting there thinking about somebody for whom that statement is not true, God bless you that you got somebody in your life for whom that statement is not true. But I declare to you, most folk only care about how your behavior affects them. They didn't say, look, man, we're going to help you. They didn't, they didn't even do what, 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 what Rahab did. Rahab sent the folk in a different direction. Judah said, no, we know where he is. We're going to go find him and bring him back to you. Most folk only care about how it affects them. That's the one, that, that's one thing I want you to get. The other thing that I want you to see is that there is never an appropriate justification for revenge. When they ask Samson, why have you brought this trouble on us? Why did you pick on these folk? Samson's best response was, I'm doing to them what they did to me. Tit for tat. Samson couldn't argue that he was defending his life, not even his own. Remembering how he settled his lost bet, y'all remember that? Killed 30 people. We know that Samson does not value human life. His extreme actions were because he had a bruised ego and everything escalated from that. I'm telling you, it's a danger. I, I, I know y'all love Whitney Houston and learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. That's a nice song, but that ain't reality. It's not, it's not what scripture says. Scripture says that self-esteem begins with God-esteem. Love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you don't even come after that. Then it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Our problem is that we think too much of us. And we think too little of everybody else. I got seven minutes. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came to meet him, shouting in triumph. And then the Spirit of God came on him with great power. The ropes on his arms fell apart like flax on fire. The thongs slipped off his hands. He spotted a fresh donkey jawbone, reached down and grabbed it, and with it killed the whole company. And Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I made heaps of donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I killed an entire company. When he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone. He named that place Ramath Lehi, Jawbone Hill. Now he was suddenly very thirsty. He called out to God, you've given your servant this great victory. Are you going to abandon me to die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? I wonder who that is since he killed everybody. <laughs> so God split open the rock basin in Lehi. Water gushed out and Samson drank. His spirit revived. He was alive again. That's why it's called in Hakor. It's still there at Lehi today. Samson judged Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. When the Philistines saw the men of Judah approaching with Samson in their custody, they let out a great cry of triumph. They thought that they had prevailed and they came charging toward him. And at the critical moment, Samson breaks free of the ropes and he seizes a fresh jawbone, the carcass of a dead animal. Y'all do remember he's a Nazarite. Y'all do remember as a Nazarite, he's not supposed to touch anything that's dead. But with that jawbone, he slaughtered a thousand Philistines. Question, what did the three companies of the men of Judah do while he slaughtered all the Philistines? Y'all say he ran. I can imagine they just sat there with their mouths wide open and their eyes as huge as dollar bills. You know, you, know, you know what they didn't do? They didn't say, Samson, stop. They didn't say, that's enough. They didn't say, you need to leave that alone. In fact, they said nothing at all. There is not a record of them saying a blessed thing. Those who do nothing to stop wrong are complicit in the wrong. Those who do nothing to stop wrong are complicit in the wrong. Cain asks God a question. When God says, where's your brother? He says, am I my brother's keeper? 
The answer to that question is an unequivocal, absolute yes. We are. We are responsible for one another. And when we fail to live up to that responsibility, then we fail to be who God called us and expects us to be. Samson grabs the jawbone of an ass. He breaks his Nazarite vow again. And this is the third mass murder that we find recorded in the scripture attributed to Samson. He killed 30 people for their clothes. He killed all the people of the village when they burned his would-be wife and father-in-law. And now he kills a company of people with the jawbone of a donkey. Three mass murders. And then he says to God, I'm thirsty. Y'all see why I say he's crazy? Now, you, you, you can get mad if you want to because it says God caused a spring to pop up in and God allowed him to drink. Once again, go back to what I started with. We have problems when we deal with the permissive will of God. So I end literally where I started. Go back and reread review what we said about the permissive will of God. And now we get to Delilah. That'll be next week. May we stand together, please. We call it the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. Uh, the whole point behind the podcast was to give us the opportunity uh, to engage in meaningful conversation uh, with people about topics that we would find to be interesting and yet topics that would not normally fit within a Sunday worship experience or within a midweek Bible study. Let's face it, in, in, in a traditional church, uh, the, 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 the primary means of communicating that we have uh, is either through Bible study or through worship. Uh, and uh, we try to do the best that we can to speak to relevant issues, contemporary issues in those venues. But it's limiting. And, and uh, I wanted something that would break free from the fetters that worship and Bible study place on you. I wanted to be able to have a means, a medium by which we could discuss with a little bit more depth, at a little bit more length, the things that are going on in our community and discuss them with people who are making a difference in our community. Uh, I wanted the opportunity to explore. I wanted the opportunity to learn. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, I'm convinced of that I don't know everything and, and that I need to know more than what I do. And in order for that to take place, then I need to expose myself to different ways of thinking, 
to different generations of thinking uh, and to try to glean from others the best of their information that would help me to make myself better and to make Shiloh a better place. And so we decided that we would uh, launch the Thrive Podcast. And uh, we're now in our second year. I think that it has grown and has expanded. Uh, and uh, I think that it's been a beneficial uh, platform for us to explore different ways of thinking and different ideas. Uh, and the feedback that we've gotten about it uh, has been nothing but positive. We want to expand on it. We want to build on it. We're, we've gone from one drop a week on Mondays to five drops a week, Monday through Friday. It allows us the opportunity uh, to get our midweek Bible study periods out on a different platform, to get our Sunday worship experiences out on a different platform. It helps the church to become more relevant and more regular in the lives of the people who listen and who uh, view the podcast. And so we're very happy about it. Uh, I don't think that we've begun to scratch the surface of what we can do with it. Much like anything, it's a new toy. We're taking it out, we're experimenting with it, trying to see what we can do with it and, and how we can make it most beneficial to us. But I think thus far, we're doing a pretty good job with it. It's a new year. Are you looking for a church home, a church that will be welcoming to you and to your family, to your children, a church that is interested in meeting the needs of people? I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, and I'm inviting you to come and share with us. Come check us out. You'll be glad that you did. This is Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, inviting you to give consideration to our Early Learning Academy as you look for a place for your pre-K, kindergarten, or first grader. We would love to have the opportunity to serve your child. We have outstanding facilities and a wonderful staff of certified teachers itching to serve you. Come by and share with us as soon as you can.